keep Ephesians 1 open in front of you. That's where we're going to be for the bulk of our time. And if you've turned uh, to the right page, you'll see at the top there a quote from a guy called Peter Drucker. Uh, He said this, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. Peter Drucker is one of these uh, kind of leadership gurus. You know, if you're involved in business in any way, I imagine you've read one of his books and come across this kind of quote. Culture. Culture is the uh, kind of collectively held beliefs or convictions or attitudes of a group of people, a corporate collective, that works its way out in their behaviours and their traditions and their customs and that kind of thing. That's what a culture is. And any collective group will have a culture. Uh, So businesses will have cultures. Uh, Nations have cultures. Ethnic groups have cultures. Families have their own cultures. Churches have their own cultures. And Peter Drucker's point is that culture... The culture of a group is way, way, way more powerful than any strategy that that group might come up with for achieving what they want to achieve. In fact, I was talking to uh, Jack Brooks about this last night. He was, yeah, he'd seen the quote. He was looking ahead, reading ahead. He said, I saw that quote, and that is so true of our organisation. It's so true that if our values, our kind of core values, are out of keeping with our strategy, it doesn't really matter what our strategy is, we won't achieve it. Well, when we believe our values that moves us in the right direction. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. Well, my hunch is, and I don't speak with any knowledge of St. John's Downshire Hill, really, but my hunch is that as evangelicals, certainly, we're quite good at thinking about strategy. Certainly in the last uh, 10 or 20 years, I think evangelicals in London have got better at thinking about strategy. We're, we're good at coming up with our plans. We've got our, our courses that we like to, to run in our churches. We've got our ideas for where we might like to plant churches and, and the partnerships that we form in order to plant those churches. We're good at organising our, our conferences, uh, getting the website all set up and that kind of thing. We like launching new movements. We're great at thinking about strategy. I'm not sure we're so good at thinking about culture. And in the worst case, I think we simply fall into the trap of just adopting the culture of the world around us. We think to ourselves, we want to be successful, we want to be fruitful, and so we just look at the way the world does it, and so adopt the way that they do things. And our culture is just an unthought-through reality that looks a little bit like the world around us, or perhaps the institutions that we've been part of in other places. And I think that was probably the temptation for the Ephesian church. Uh, You could, this morning if you want to, or perhaps this afternoon when you've got a quiet moment, read Acts chapter 19, because that's where you find out about Ephesus, the town. Uh, Ephesus was the, the hub of the region, the kind of most influential city. It's on the western coast of what we call Turkey these days. They called it Asia back then, the western coast of Turkey, there was Ephesus, a hub that had this huge kind of gravitational pull for the region around it. Because, and you can read about this in Acts chapter 19, in Ephesus, the tradition was uh, that um, the goddess Artemis had sent down this rock 
from heaven that had landed in Ephesus. And as a result of that, they had built this great big temple to the goddess Artemis. And people would come from all around Turkey, all around Asia, on pilgrimage, as it were, to worship at the temple of the goddess Artemis. So that this temple dominated the landscape of the city that was Ephesus. Uh, physically, it dominated it. Wherever you lived in Ephesus, the chances were, if you lifted your eyes up, there was the temple on the landscape, kind of casting its, its shadow over the whole town. Uh, but not just the, the physical landscape, it dominated the spiritual landscape of the town. So you read Acts chapter 19, you see there uh, all sorts of crazy kind of spiritual, supernatural spiritual activity going on. Uh, a demon possession, people doing amazing, scary spiritual things. So that if you lived in Ephesus, you were well aware of everything spiritual that went on around the temple to the goddess Artemis. It dominated the physical landscape, the spiritual landscape and the economic landscape of the town. So again, you read in Acts chapter 19 of, of how people had uh, spent huge amounts of money on, on uh, kind of religious manuscripts that they had probably bought at the temple. And you read about the silversmiths in the town who earned their living by, by um, constructing little um, idols or trinkets that people, when they came to the temple, they would, you know, they'd, they'd buy their trinket or their idol to take away with them. So they went back home, they had something to remember their visit and something to keep their religious life going. So if you lived in Ephesus, it was very clear what dominated the subculture of that town. It was the temple cult to the goddess Artemis. Spiritually, economically, the whole town was orientated around that place. So that if you're a Christian living in Ephesus, feeling small and weak and marginalised, and again, Acts 19 says that that was probably the case, your temptation would have been to want to buy in to the subculture of the town. Your temptation would have been to be drawn toward the ways and the, the, the means and the methods of the culture that they were living in. And so Paul writes this letter to the Ephesian church, or maybe to a, a cluster of churches uh, in the area around Ephesus, to introduce them to the radical counterculture that the gospel was to bring about in their church. And not just to introduce them to this counterculture, but to help them as a church live it out. And so that's why we're going to be in Ephesians for uh, the next day or two together. To see how Paul wanted to help the Ephesian church bring about a gospel culture in their life together. So that you here at St. John's Downshire Hill can do the same. So that more and more you might become a radical gospel counterculture in a city that has a dominant other culture. And so it's very striking to see, therefore, I think, the first thing that Paul does when he writes to the Ephesian church. The first thing that Paul does is to bless God. It's to bless God. It's the first heading on the outline if you're following along there. You see verse 3? After he's done the, the kind of formalities of the introduction, verse 3, he says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. 
praise be to God, he says, or more literally, blessed be God. That's what you get if you're in the English Standard Version. Blessed be God, which is probably on balance a better translation because it means it equates with what he then says halfway through the verse. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. Paul wants to bless the God who has blessed us. And I think it's really easy when you read Ephesians to just skip over those first two or three words. Praise be to God. Because what he then launches into looks like very rich, deep, dense theology. You think, I just want to, I want to plow into that and get stuck into that. But what he does in verses 3 to 14 is not just outline theology. He is blessing God for those truths. That's the first thing he wants to do, to bless God. And if you're familiar with Paul's writing, you know it's kind of a departure from what he normally does when he writes his letters. So in almost all of the other letters that Paul writes in the New Testament, you can flick through them later and, and, uh, later and check this out. He always starts the way that he does in verses 1 and 2 with a kind of a greeting, you know, from Paul to the saints in Ephesus, grace and peace to you. That's, that's the way he always starts. Sometimes he adds a bit more content in that greeting, but he always starts with that greeting and then the next thing he normally does is then say, I thank God for this about you and I pray to God for this about you. That is his normal pattern. Greetings, thanks to God, pray to God. And in the letter to the Ephesians, he does get to the thanksgiving and the prayers, but not until verse kind of 15, 16, 17, if you glance there. He does start talking about what he thanks God for and he does tell them what he prays for. But first of all, we get this kind of well, whatever it is, 12-verse detour, this 12-verse hiatus of praise to God and of blessing to God. And I wonder, as you read verse 3, how comfortable does it make you feel? Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God's. To put it in concrete terms, how would you feel if I had turned up this morning and said, look, for the first 10 or 15 minutes of the talk, I'm just going to bless God. Would you bless God with me? Let's bless God together. Blessed be God for the blamelessness that he's given to us. Blessed be God for the adoption that he's given to us into his family. Uh, blessed be God for the forgiveness of sins that we have. Blessed be God for the revelation of his will. Blessed be God for his Holy Spirit through which he sealed us for a future that will last forever. How would you have felt if I just, if all I did was bless God for the first 10 minutes? Now, I don't know, you, you might be from a different culture to me. You might be thinking, what's your problem? That sounds like a, a lovely thing to do. But for me as a kind of um, 40-something white British male, it just feels a little bit gushy. <laughs> you know, it's a little bit kind of, oh, it's a bit heart on your sleeve, isn't it, Paul? Uh, there was a moment last night where we sung that song. Um, uh, it, uh, it's a great song. Rejoice, you know, rejoice. It just says again and again, rejoice. And there's that great moment where it says, rejoice, lift your hands and lift your voice. And I stood there thinking, I really want to. <laughs> but I just can't bring myself to do it. I'll lift my voice. I'll lift my voice. That'll be fine. I'll lift my voice a bit louder because lifting my hands just feels a little bit much and no one else is doing it. So we'll all be fine. <laughs> a bit gushy, isn't it? Doing that kind of thing. Do you ever start your prayers by saying, Lord, I just want to bless you. I want to bless you for all of the blessings that we have. Well, the good thing is we're not interested in the subculture of a 40-something white British male. 
we're interested in being a gospel subculture. And so without skipping on past this moment, we've got to ask the question, why does Paul start his letter to the Ephesians by saying, praise be to God, blessed be God? And I think the answer, or part of the answer, maybe the first part of the answer, is Paul starts his letter in that way because it is the natural overflow of the healthy Christian hearts. Or to put it in different terms, it's the natural outworking of someone in whom the gospel has gone powerfully to work. It will be the natural outflow or overflow of a gospel culture. Uh, The uh, Harvard Medical School uh, produced an article quite recently. You can find it online. And in it, it cites loads of different studies, uh, peer-reviewed academic studies, that outline the benefits of giving thanks. Not, not written by Christians in any sense. And yet it's, it lists in all kinds of different ways all of the benefits of thanksgiving, of, of gratitude, uh, health benefits, uh, you know, your, kind of, your, your blood pressure, your, your mental health. They're all improved by simply giving thanks for things. Uh, your relationships are strengthened, apparently, by simply giving thanks for things. Uh, you will sleep better, apparently, if you are in the habit of giving thanks for things. We could go on. The list is kind of endless of the benefits of giving thanks for things, such that some psychologists have recommended that it's a healthy thing to do. In fact, some people have suggested that you should give thanks to the universe. Coming from an atheist worldview, people say, well, we don't really know what to give thanks to, but we know it's good to give thanks. And so they say, well, why not make a habit of giving thanks to the universe? Well, as Christians, we don't need to give thanks to the universe because we know we have a God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. And the natural overflow, therefore, of the Christian heart is to do exactly that, to bless God. Um, Not in that that way that sometimes we use the word bless. You know, when you see a a, a little toddler who does something cute and we all go, oh, bless. That's that's not what Paul means when he blesses God. He's not not going, oh, bless God, in that slightly patronising way. Uh, Nor is he suggesting that God lacks something that we need to give him. God lacks nothing. He is perfectly self-sufficient. And yet everything that God has done in and through the gospel means that it is entirely appropriate for us to pour out praise to him, to want to bless him, to to want to exalt him, to want to magnify him, to want the praise and glory of the world around us to go towards him. That's what blessing him is. And because it is the natural completion of a life that appreciates the gospel. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. The gospel-saturated person, the gospel-saturated church, is a church that pours out praise and blessing to God. Why does Paul bless God? Well, in the first instance, because I think it's just the most natural thing to do as someone whose heart has been caught up with the gospel. But I think there might be a second reason why Paul does it. 
The first reason is that a gospel culture pours out praise to God and blesses him, and Paul is modelling that. But the reverse of that is true, I think. That blessing and praising God produces a gospel culture. Blessing and praising God produces gospel culture. You see, like I said, Paul's aim, I think, in the Ephesian church is to instill in them a radical gospel culture, gospel counterculture, you might say. And he knows that that will happen as the eyes of the Ephesians, the spiritual eyes of the Ephesians are, as it were, opened to the gospel realities that are all around them, spiritually speaking. And as their hearts are persuaded of those gospel realities. And Paul knows that that will happen as the Ephesian church bless and praise God for those blessings. Because praise produces people who are persuaded. Let me try and illustrate what I mean by that. Uh, If you're into football, uh, you'll know that for the last few years, a debate has been raging as to who is the GOAT. What do I mean by GOAT? GOAT uh, stands for greatest of all time. Greatest of all time. Who is the greatest of all time? And the debate at the moment is between Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi. Right? If you've watched any football in the last 15 years, we have been privileged to see these two all-time great footballers going head-to-head. And there's a genuine debate. You look at the statistics and it isn't necessarily obvious And you ask the question, who is the greatest, Ronaldo or Messi? And and there's genuine debate out there. But my bet is that if you asked Real Madrid fans or Manchester United fans, certainly from the time when he was last at the club, maybe not this time around, we won't get into that. If you asked Real Madrid fans, certainly they would tell you Cristiano Ronaldo is the GOAT. If you asked Barcelona fans, they would tell you Messi is the GOAT, no doubt about it. Now, why is that the case? Because the statistical evidence, the objective facts on the ground are ambiguous. There's a genuine debate to be had. The reason is because, for the best part of a decade, Real Madrid fans spent their time praising Cristiano Ronaldo. Right? They saw what he did on the pitch, week in, week out. They were caught up with what he did. Every time he scored, they rose to their feet and they lifted their hands and they praised Cristiano Ronaldo. Uh, Just across Spain in Barcelona, Barcelona fans were doing the same, but for Messi. And so as they praised Messi for the work that he did on the football pitch, so they were persuaded that he is the greatest of all time. Praising someone persuades our hearts. And that, I think, is what Paul is wanting the Ephesian church to do as he starts this letter for them, as he sets this example for them. The act of praising is persuasive, he says. And so if you want to be a gospel culture, I think he would say you need to be in the habit of blessing God for all of the blessings that he has given to us. And so I say this without any Uh, knowledge of the inner life of St. John's Downshire Hill. So this is not pointed, but let me encourage you to be a church that is unafraid to praise God. Let me uh, encourage you to be a church that is unafraid to praise God in your prayer life. I've been trying back at Crossway to encourage us more and more to start our prayers by using the words 
blessed be God's. Just to take time to bless God for who he is. I mean, it was wonderful at the prayer meeting this morning that we spent time thanking God. It's a great thing to do. I wonder if we could go one step further in how we use our language. Let's spend our time praising God. Let's spend our time blessing God for who he is and what he's done. Uh, let's be unafraid to sing songs that are full of praise to God, that use the language of blessing God. Uh, this is one step further, I think. Let, let's be unafraid to have conversations with each other in which we overtly speak of wanting to bless God. I can't remember the last time I actually had a conversation with someone where we started by talking about how we wanted to bless God for something. And you might be the same. And so it will be an awkward thing to do at first. But I think it wouldn't be a bad thing to try and get in the habit of starting conversations by talking about how we want to bless God for something. Or not even saying how we want to bless God. Let's just start conversations with, blessed be God for dot, 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 whatever it might be. Because Paul does it in writing, but I suspect he would have done it in person if he had the church. Let's be unafraid to be a church that blesses and praises God. And to, bless, and to bless and praise God for every blessing that we have in the heavenly realms. Because that's where Paul goes from verse 4 until verse 14. Not, like I say, just outlining for them dense theology, though it is dense theology, but blessing God for this dense theology. Because these are the realities, these are the blessings that Paul wants the Ephesians to have foremost in their minds. As they step out into day-to-day -day life in Ephesus, as the eyes in their heads take in what is going on around them, Paul wants them to be absolutely saturated with the heavenly realities that God has blessed them with. That's why he starts the letter with this bombardment of blessing. Because verses uh, 4 to 14 are a bombardment of blessings. They just kind of come thick and fast. Spiritually speaking, verses 4 to 14 are, um, it's like being in a desert uh, with a dry and barren landscape laid out before you and then hearing the, the kind of crack of thunder and feeling the rain beginning to pour down and pour down and pour down on the landscape until you see the, the streams and the rivers begin to fill and the life begin to spring out from the ground. That's what verses 4 to 14 are meant to be like. John Stott, who's written this commentary, who, who wrote that book, The Cross of Christ, that was recommended to us. This is what he says about these opening verses of Ephesians. Just enjoy, enjoy this. He says, in the original Greek... These 12 verses constitute a single complex sentence. As Paul dictates, his speech pours out of his mouth in a continuous cascade. He neither pauses for breath nor punctuates his words with full stops. Commentators have searched for metaphors vivid enough to convey the impact of this opening outburst of adoration. We enter this epistle through a magnificent gateway, writes one commentator. It is a golden chain of many links or a kaleidoscope of dazzling lights and shifting colours. 
Another commentator likens it to a snowball tumbling down a hill, picking up volume as it descends. Another, com uh, another commentator writes to, uh, or compares it to some long-winded racehorse careering onward at full speed. More romantic is one commentator's musical simile. This rhapsodic adoration is comparable to the overture of an opera, which contains the successive melodies that are to follow. And one commentator suggests that it is like the preliminary flights of the eagle rising and wheeling around, as though for a while uncertain what direction in his boundless freedom he shall take. A gateway, a golden chain, a kaleidoscope, a snowball, a racehorse, an operatic overture, and the flight of an eagle. All these metaphors in their different ways describe the impression of colour, movement, and grandeur which the sentence makes on the reader's mind. The whole paragraph is a paean of praise, a doxology, or indeed a eulogy, for that is the word Paul uses. He begins by blessing God for blessing us with every conceivable blessing. And so for the next few minutes, that's what we're going to do. It's going to walk through these blessings one by one to enjoy them together. Imagine yourself walking through a, a grand landscape, taking it in moment by moment, soaking it in and pressing it in on your own hearts so that these realities, these blessings that God has given to us are the most dominant realities in our lives and our imaginations. Starting with the fact that God has chosen us for perfection. God has chosen us for perfection. That's verse four. Paul writes, for God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Paul is saying there that God made a plan before time began. And it had you at the centre of it, if you are a Christian here this morning. And the plan that God made was to make you pure and perfect in his sight. Now that should blow our minds if we think about it. So if you just pause and think for a moment, if you can imagine such a thing, imagine God before time began, sitting down and coming up with this plan that had you at the centre. And conceiving of you as pure and perfect in his sights. Because in a world that is full of people who long to be special, you know, constantly making videos of themselves and posting them on, on YouTube or TikTok or whatever it is in the hope that that video will go viral so that the world will recognise them as special. In a world full of people who queue for hours so that they can audition for some talent show so that they might get spotted and be recognised as special. In a world full of people who are burning the candle at both ends, desperately trying to prove themselves to their bosses. Paul says, you are so blessed because God chose before time that you would be pure and perfect in his sight. In a world full of people carrying with them all kinds of baggage, with cupboards full of skeletons that they're ashamed of. How amazing that God would bless you by choosing before time to make you blameless and holy in his sight. Blessed be God. Secondly, he blessed you 
or predestined you for adoption. That's verses 5 and 6. He goes on, he, here's blessing number 2, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loved. Spiritually speaking, the Bible says again and again, by nature, human beings are like orphans. Uh, we have all individually taken the decision to walk away from God. That's just our natural disposition towards him. Uh, we've walked out of the family home, chosen to live life, spiritually speaking, on the streets, as it were, orphaned, cut off from the family. But by grace... God has decided in Jesus Christ to welcome us back into that family. That's the free offer that he makes to us. So that now you and I, spiritually speaking, are no longer orphans living spiritually on the streets. We've been welcomed back into God's family, welcomed home, as it were. And welcomed home not by a, a landlord who, steps, who stands by the door and opens it up for us and gives us the keys and makes us sign a contract telling us that we're going to pay the rent once a month. As long as we do our bit, we can stay in the home, he says. He's not even welcomed us back into the home like a, like a charity worker. You know, he takes someone who's homeless off the street and says, look, we want to help you get back on your feet. We want to help you pull your socks up and do better in life. You can stay here for a while while you get your life together. Now, God has not welcomed us home uh, like the landlord's or like the charity worker, God has welcomed us home as father and given us all of the rights and all of the privileges and all of the access of his son, Jesus Christ. That's why he says we've been adopted as his sons, because we come into the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the son of God, so that now we enjoy all of the privilege, all of the security, all of the access, all of the assurance of relationship that Jesus Christ himself enjoys. Uh, psychologists say, there might be some in the room, I don't know. Psychologists say, I think, that often the, um, the most important relationship any human being has in the early years of their life is the relationship they have with their parents. And in a world full of broken relationships between parents and children, what a wonderful thing to know that we have been restored to the perfect relationship with our Father in heaven. We live in a city, London, that's a very lonely city, full of very lonely people. How wonderful to be told by God, welcome home, come into my family with all of the blessings and all of the privileges that come from that. Predestined for adoption. Here's the next blessing. He says we've been given forgiveness through redemption. That's verses 7 and 8. Verse 7, he says, uh, in Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. This is the heart of the gospel, that uh, you and I have been given through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's shorthand for through the death of Jesus Christ. Because he died on the cross, taking the punishment that we deserve for our sins. Because his blood was shed, ours doesn't have to be. We deserve to die. We deserve to be cut off from God. We deserve an eternity apart from him. 
But through the death of Jesus Christ, we have been lifted up and out of that reality. We have enjoyed what he calls redemption by grace so that we might be forgiven. So that God looks at us with all of the mess in the backgrounds of our lives, the failures of our pasts, the failures of our presence, even the failures of our future. God knows all about all of that and he looks at us and says nonetheless, I forgive you. I forgive you. And in a city full of people desperately trying to right the wrongs of their pasts, in a city full of people who wake up in the middle of the night still haunted by the things that they have done, in a city full of people trying to prove themselves because of the things that they've done wrong in the past, in a city full of people who are running away from their pasts, in a city full of people who feel in the grip of habits that have been formed over the long term, how sweet to hear those words. Forgiveness through redemption. Here's the next blessing. He goes on in this bombardment of blessings. We have been given complete revelation. That's verses 9 and 10. He goes on. He, he, uh, God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Jesus Christ. Do you ever ask yourself the question, where's everything going? Like, what direction is everything heading in? I'm guessing over the last week or so, that's a question you may have asked more than you have done in the past. What does the future hold? Where is the world heading to? And here in verses 9 and 10, Paul tells us that there is a plan that God has. It's a plan from before the beginning of time. And it has Jesus Christ, his great king, his son, right at the centre of it. And God's plan, we're told here in verse 10, is to bring all things together, things in heaven and things on earth, under one head, Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know how that's going to work out. That tightly packed little sentence contains incredible realities. The reality that one day everything in heaven and on earth, the entire cosmos, is going to be reconciled, as it were. It's going to be brought back into the right order of things and brought under the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that no matter how muddled and confused and conflicted the world might seem today, and it does seem like that today, doesn't it? No matter how fractured and misdirected and all over the place the world might seem, God has a plan one day to bring it all under the Lord Jesus Christ. What an incredible thing. And what an incredible thing to know. What a blessing to know that. And that's what we know as Christians. That's been revealed to us. We live in a world, don't we, in a city full of people um, uh, um, struggling with FOMO. You know that, that, that little phrase, FOMO? Uh, F-O-M-O, fear of missing out. Fear of missing out. Spend any time on social media, you'll come across it. People struggle with fear of missing out. They, they don't want to miss whatever is going on that's exciting in the world. And so they're always looking out for for the, the, the thing to be involved with. We live in a world full of people 
desperately desperate to be involved in the next big thing, right? What is the, the, the movements that we can be involved in? What is the right side of history? You want to be on the right side of, of history, don't you? People, people spend their day jobs desperately trying to work out where the world is going so that they can get their lives in line with it, so that they can get their investments in line with it. We live in a city that is desperate to know the future, desperate to know where the world is heading. And Paul says, if you're a Christian here today, you are richly, richly blessed because you know the answer to that question. God has revealed it to you. The whole world is heading to a grand reconciliation under the Lord Jesus Christ. What a blessing to know that, to be able to get your life into line with that reality. Given complete revelation. And then finally, here's the final blessing. We have been sealed for an inheritance. The great thing about all of these blessings, as Paul unpacks them, is that they cover, they cover everything. They, he starts in the past, by which I mean before time began. God's plans from all eternity. They cover everything that really matters in the present. The forgiveness of everything we've done in the past, present and future. Our, our status with God, that we get to be called children of his. And these blessings span on into the future and the glorious inheritance that one day we will gain as Christians. It's verses 13 and 14. He says, you were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed. So the moment you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, all of these blessings came to you. Having believed, he says, you were marked in him with a seal the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Uh, um, when we buy our kids' school uniform, the first thing my wife does is write our name on that school uniform. We mark it out as ours. At the moment you put your trust in Jesus Christ, God marked you out as his. Uh, not by getting a little pen and writing his name on you, but by pouring his Holy Spirit out into your hearts. A seal, as it were, by which God says, she's mine. He's mine. I'm going to take up residence in their life. And as the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your life, it's like a, a down payment, a deposit, as it were, Paul says, that is the guarantee of a perfect future reality when the Holy Spirit will, as it were, overtake all of our life and experience and being, and indeed the whole of the life and experience and being of this creation. He will transform it into the glorious new creation and us into the perfect likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the inheritance that we are looking forward to. We have the down payment today of the Holy Spirit and the perfect promise of that in the future. And again, it's one of those things, isn't it, that you struggle to get your heads around. Like it's a wonderful thing just to pause every once in a while and to think to myself, I've got an inheritance coming that is tied up with the Lord Jesus Christ and everything being united in him. What will that be like? You just let your mind run wild for a little while. That's what God has promised to us. Or to put it in the terms of Ephesians 1, Ephesians 1, that's what he's blessed us with. It is a bombardment of blessings that Paul wants 
to be the dominant reality in our hearts, in our minds, in our imaginations and in our day-to-days. Uh, I was at a conference recently. Uh, it was a kind of, a, kind of a, a retreat for people in ministry. And the guy speaking on it was a guy called Ray Ortland. If you come across any books by Ray Ortland, they're brilliant. Get hold of them, read them. If you come across talks by Ray Ortland, listen to them. They will, they will be of great blessing to you. And, um, and he started the con- first talk he gave. Uh, again, it was um, <laughs> like it was on the earnest sides. And so as a, as a Brit, I was there going, this is, this is wonderful. And this is all a bit too much. I can't handle this. He looked us all in the eye. And just said to us, I want you to know at the start of this conference that God is for you. And I kind of felt myself kind of curling up into the fetal position and rocking gently, (laughs) conflicted, didn't know what to do with myself. It was just all too much. It was one of those kind of sort of penny drop moments. It was so simple and yet so profound. God is for you. Like if you had to sum up Ephesians 1, 1 to 14, in four words, they might be the four words you choose. God is for you. Because all of these blessings are all underpinned by nothing you've done and everything he's done. You see how grace is written through these uh, these verses? Verse 2, he starts by saying, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 6, he talks about how all of this is underpinned by his glorious grace. In verse 7, he speaks of the riches of his grace. John Calvin said this, uh, he said, Jesus is the fountain that never dries up, nor can ever become exhausted. And in him we have all variety of good things and all perfection. What a beautiful image, a fountain that never dries up, a fountain, as it were, that just overflows and overflows and overflows so that every spiritual blessing pours out from him to us. God is for you. And that's what Paul wants the Ephesians to know, first and foremost. Whatever the world looks like around them, as they step out into Ephesus, a city that for them would have felt hostile, As we step out into London, a city that often feels hostile and difficult to be in, Paul wants us to know, first and foremost, God is for you and has blessed you. And he wants and indeed prays that the eyes of their hearts would be opened to that reality. When you do get into the prayer in verse 18, this is what he says. Do you see verse 18? He says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know. And then he goes on to talk again of these blessings that we have in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, if you like, wants the subculture of the church in Ephesus to be dominated and dictated, not by the eyes in our heads. That's how we normally live our lives, isn't it? By the eyes in our heads. If the culture of St. John's Downshire Hill is dominated by the eyes in your heads, it will simply reflect the culture of the world around you and the culture of the institutions that you belong to. But if by God's grace he opens the eyes of your hearts to the spiritual unseen realities in the heavenly places that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, then truly St. John's Downshire Hill will be a gospel culture. So why don't I pray now, echo Paul's prayer, that he would open the eyes of our hearts. 
Let's pray together. Our Father, we're, we're so grateful. We want to bless you uh, here this morning. We want to praise you, to exalt you, to magnify you for all of the blessings that we have. Lord, you are so generous. You're so gracious. Your mercy is so rich and abounding. Your character is so glorious, written through with, with compassion, with, with mercy, with grace, with steadfast love. We're so grateful for that, to be able to stand here this morning in your grace. And we ask, please, our Father, that you would open the eyes of our hearts so that more and more we would grasp the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, the inheritance that is ours by your Holy Spirit, the power that you have worked in the world through the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask, please, make those realities true as they are in the heavenly places and in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Make those realities the dominant realities in our hearts and minds. Please shape us, we pray, in accordance with them so that they don't just capture our our, our heads and our hearts, but our, our hands as well. We ask, Lord, that over the course of the next day or so, you would help us not just to think through what this means for us in theory, but in practice, and to begin to live it out, Lord. Help us to live out these realities as we are among each other, starting with blessing you. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.